I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Rowenta. Yes, I host The Goop Podcast and run the Goop.com content team, but I'm first and foremost a mom of two boys. There isn't a ton of room on my plate for such domestic extravagances as, say, ironing, which is where the Rowenta handheld steamer comes in. The 1,600-watt steam flow gets wrinkles out of shirts, dresses, and pants with just a few flicks of the wrist. The steamer works both vertically and horizontally on any fabric, so all I have to do is lay out our clothes on the bed and go to town. You can shop the Rowenta handheld steamer on goop.com. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with someone who has shown us a new way of thinking about some aspect of life. I'll be interviewing some guests who have completely changed our culture, like Oprah herself. You'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer, Elise Lunin. I know I'm biased, but I think she's the best interviewer around. Today's guest is Brian Stevenson. He's a public interest lawyer and the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Brian is also the author of Just Mercy, which is an incredible and heartbreaking account of our criminal justice system and the many ways it could be made better. Brian recently adapted Just Mercy into a book for young adults, which should be required reading. I don't believe that the majority of people in this country actually want to move backward, want to see more inequality, see more racial bias and discrimination. I think Uh, There is a mass of people in this country that really wants us to move forward, to get to a better place. We've just been, at times, indifferent. We've been lethargic. We haven't realized that we all have to act. This is not going to happen by itself. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, talked to Brian about the way he's pursued true justice and how we can join him in the fight. If some of us stand when other people say sit down, if some of us speak when other people say be quiet, We witness really important change. We become a model of what can happen when people who care and and think deeply about the importance of equality and justice and fairness and opportunity for women and people of color raise their voices. And that's a very exciting dynamic that gives me some hope about the political moment that we're in. At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, let's cut to their chat. So Brian, Desmond Tutu, Nicholas Kristoff, and others have called you America's Nelson Mandela. Did you always know that you would do this? Did you, as you were growing up in the rural South before going to Harvard, did you already feel locked into your purpose? Or how did you sort of end up doing this work? No, it's all been a discovery for me. Uh, I grew up in a poor racially segregated rural community. And when I was a little boy, I had to start my education in the colored school. Black kids couldn't go to the public schools. We felt pretty marginalized. And I didn't have aspirations uh, beyond wanting to make things better and see the people who lived around me treated more fairly. Uh, When the schools opened up, I had the opportunity to go to high school. Uh, There were no high schools for black children when my dad was a teenager. So he couldn't go to high school in our county. And I already felt fortunate about that. When I got to college, a whole nother world opened up. My parents hadn't gone to college. I was a first-generation college student. 
And so like a lot of kids in that situation, you're constantly discovering things. And for me, it became important to recognize how things changed. And there was never a time in the county where I grew up where you could have persuaded people politically to vote to end racial segregation. It took lawyers coming into our community enforcing Brown versus Board of Education that ended uh, racial segregation in education and gave me the opportunity. So I became attracted to the law because I saw it as a tool to help disempowered people, disfavored people, marginalized people without getting uh, majority support, without getting uh, the power you need to affect things in a democratic process. And that's why I ended up in law school. But even there, it was not what I expected. Uh, you know, I was quite dis. Dis disenchanted, frankly, because um, I went to law school because I was concerned about racial inequality, social injustice, uh, helping the poor, and it didn't seem like anybody was talking about those things. And uh, to be honest, I felt diminished. Uh, when I got to Harvard, um, I was in a small group of people who introduced themselves uh, during the small group, and they were all the children and grandchildren of people who were lawyers. Um, I didn't want people to know that I started my education in a colored school. I didn't want them to know I was the great-grandchild of people who were enslaved. I thought it might uh, diminish me further. And then when I started working with the poor, working with condemned prisoners, I began to realize that rather than this background being something that diminished me, it, it was a source of power. I think it actually gave me a perspective that I believe was relevant and important for people talking about justice and equality. And all of a sudden, I wanted everybody to know I began my education in a colored school. My great-grandparents were enslaved. And yet, I had this vision, this hope, this desire to see greater justice and equality. And that's really what shaped uh, my career. And if I've learned or achieved anything, it's because I am the child of people who were humiliated by racial segregation, uh, the grandchild of people who were terrorized by lynching and violence, the great-grandchild of people who were enslaved. Uh, that, for me, has created a, a, a passion for eliminating bias and discrimination, for seeking justice. And if anything um, energizes me and empowers me, it's that history, that relationship to what it feels like to be poor and excluded and to desire something more. So I want to talk about Just Mercy, but first, I think, you know, I know that the new Legacy Museum and National Museum for Peace and Justice in Montgomery just opened at your hands, at the hands of Equal Justice Initiative. And I know that... You know, you talk about sort of the four parts, right? The memorial, the slavery, the post-slavery terrorism of bombs and lynchings that was unleashed on the black communities throughout the South, Jim Crow and the apartheid era, and now mass incarceration. I think it's so interesting to hear you talk. You know, you're not an old person, and yet you're you were still a victim of the system. And I think we. And I know you've talked about this before, but we like to think like, oh, it's done. We're done with that. It's in the past. Let's move forward. But clearly there's a tremendous amount of reconciliation and grieving that's, that needs to happen. How do you get America to sort of look its ugly history in the face? And do you think we can then move forward? Yeah. Well, I do think that we haven't done the hard work we need to do in this country to confront and overcome the narrative of racial difference that we all inherited I mean, I actually don't think anybody's in really free in America. I think we're all burdened uh, 
by this history of racial inequality that's created a kind of smog that's in the air. And it doesn't matter whether you live in California or you live in Mississippi or you live in New Hampshire. We've all been uh, contaminated by this notion that um, people's value, people's worth, people's dignity is somehow linked to their color, to their race. And that myth, that lie, has really undermined our ability to be a just society. And so I think we we haven't talked about that, and we need to talk about that if we want to get to a better place. I think we need to talk about the fact that we live in a post-genocide society. I think what happened to Native people when Europeans came to this continent was genocide. And we tried to kind of ignore that or minimize that by characterizing Native people as savages, by creating a rhetoric organized around their racial difference. I think that history of genocide, uh, that use of racial difference narrative to justify the violence that Native people uh, suffered was key to our comfort with enslavement. I don't think we would have been a nation that enslaved black people for two and a half centuries, uh, but for that existing narrative. And I think the great evil of American slavery was this narrative of racial difference, the ideology of white supremacy that uh, emerged during this time period. I don't think the biggest problem of enslavement was forced labor or involuntary servitude. I think it was this idea that black people aren't fully human, that they're not as good as white people, that they can't do the things that white people can do, that they're not as smart, they're not as hardworking, they're not as uh, moral. And that ideology, that narrative of racial difference was the great evil of slavery. And if you look at the 13th Amendment, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this narrative of racial difference, which continues. And it's why I've argued that slavery doesn't end in 1865, it just evolves. And then we have these decades of terrorism and lynching where black people are pulled out of their homes and burned and drowned and beaten and hanged and terrorized that we haven't talked about. And older people of color can tell you that they get angry when they hear people in this country talking about how we're dealing with domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11 because they say we grew up with terror. We were menaced and threatened every day of our lives. We didn't know that we were capable of fighting a war on terror. Why was there no war on terror when 6 million people uh, were forced from the American South and to the North and the Midwest and the demographic geography that now sets up many of the contemporary issues that we're dealing with is shaped by this history because the black people in Los Angeles and Oakland and Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit didn't go to those communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They went to those communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. And then even with the civil rights movement, which was wonderful, we haven't dealt with this narrative of racial difference. It still persists, which is why even today, uh, college graduates, uh, actors, advocates, writers, uh, ministers, people of faith, kind people, caring people uh, can be presumed dangerous and guilty if they're black or brown and have their lives threatened because of that persisting narrative. So I do think we have to talk about it. And I've seen it happen in other countries, and I think that's what encourages me. In South Africa, there is a commitment to, to narrative shift. There was a truth and reconciliation process. In Rwanda, you see things happening to recover from the genocide. You can't spend time in Rwanda without being uh, required to hear about what happened during that horrific time period. I go to Berlin, Germany, and you can't go 100 meters in Berlin without seeing markers and stones that have been placed next to the homes 
of Jewish families that were abducted during the Holocaust, the Germans want you to visit the Holocaust Memorial because they're trying to change the narrative. They don't want to be thought of as Nazis and fascists for the rest of their lives. In this country, we haven't made that commitment. We don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about segregation. We have a hard time talking about racial inequality. And that's why these sites that we've created, the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial, for me, are critical. They're important cultural places. Uh, when you go to the Holocaust Museum, if you're attentive, if you pay attention, when you get to the end of it, you are moved to say, never again, along with all of those survivors and people who appreciate the horrors of the Holocaust. I think we need to create spaces in America that present our history of racial inequality that motivate all of us, not just black and brown people, but all of us to say, Never again. And if we make that commitment, I just think we can achieve something so much better than what we've achieved to date. There, there is something better out there waiting for us when it comes to racial equality, when it comes to overcoming bigotry and discrimination than what I think we've experienced to date. And how much of that resistance do you think to, to doing this work the way that you mentioned Germany has done it or Rwanda, it comes from people just not recognizing that they are as part of this complicit, like in their white privilege. I put myself in that camp. And how much of it is so how much of it is just people not being fully aware and how much of it is um, just racism that's still endemic in this country. Obviously, we're it's coming. Like I know it was obviously there, but with the election of Trump and the Klan reemerging, I think a lot of people are are stunned that it is so alive and well. What do you think the the split is there? Yeah, well, I think we have practiced silence for for decades. I think people have been discouraged from talking honestly about this history, and when you do that, you you become vulnerable. Uh, to manifestations of that same thinking. If they never talked about the Holocaust in Germany, whatever the uh, incidents of nationalism and bigotry that you see in Europe uh, today, it would be a hundred times worse. And so I think we've all been implicated in this uh, failure to talk honestly about our history. And then we've done something else. We've actually created a false narrative about how wonderful things are and that's what you see in the region where I live here in the American South, where we have romanticized uh, the era of slavery. We have elevated the figures and defenders and architects of slavery. And Alabama Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. Uh, Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday in Alabama. We don't have Martin Luther King Day. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. I live in Montgomery, Alabama, where the two largest high schools are Jefferson Davis High and Robert E. Lehigh. And I just think when you create a landscape littered with the iconography of this era and these celebratory gestures, you undermine the ability to get to a healthy place. Uh, I don't think uh, there should be Adolf Hitler statues all over Germany. I don't think it would be appropriate to be celebrating uh, people who have created these lives that are associated with oppression and abuse. And so all of those things conspire to create an unhealthy environment where talking honestly about these issues is really, really hard. The encouraging thing is that when people learn the truth about the history, when they actually begin to confront it, it's such a difficult and painful and traumatic history. It's very hard to defend it. It's very hard to justify it. And that's what opens the door 
to new relationships. And I think those new relationships are absolutely possible in this country. But we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, we're in the early days of a kind of post-apartheid, post-segregation conversation in America that allows us to deal with the legacy that we have inherited in a more hopeful and honest way. I think the challenge is, do we have enough people motivated to see the importance of that, to engage in this conversation in a way that can actually be transformative? So speaking of um, Germany, I think it was in your TED Talk when you talked about, I think you were lecturing in Germany or you were lecturing in Europe and a woman, a German woman stood up and said that with Germany's history and with the mass extermination of human life, they could never have the death penalty. And obviously that extends to us. I mean, that it's one of the most jaw-openingly obvious statements ever. Yet we're very comfortable with killing as a sport in a way, or not a sport, but I know we have a history of killing black people for spectacle and sport. And now the death penalty continues, which I know is you know, the, one of the primary factors in your work. Why, why do you think, do you see it as just lynching made formal in some ways? Well, I think without a yeah, I do think without a consciousness about this history, we replicate that history in new forms uh, all the time. And I certainly think that what we're experiencing when it comes to mass incarceration in America is an echo of this history. Uh, we had a fairly stable prison population in the United States throughout most of the 20th century until the 1970s, when uh, Richard Nixon and other political leaders began preaching the need for a war on drugs. And we criminalized people who were drug addicted and drug dependent. And we said that people with addiction and dependency problems were criminals. Now, we didn't have to do that. We could have said that addiction and dependency is a health problem. And we need our healthcare system to respond to that. But those um, politicians weren't actually trying to solve the drug problem. They were actually engaged in what I call the politics of fear and anger. They wanted everybody afraid and wanted everybody angry because the truth is we're much more tolerant of inequality and abuse and oppression and injustice when we're motivated by fear and anger, when we're governed by fear and anger. And that's true all over the world. Go any place in the world where you see people being oppressed. If you ask the oppressors why they do what they do, they'll give you a narrative of fear and anger. And that happened in America. And we now have uh, the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Uh, We've become one of the most punitive societies in human history. Uh, 2.3 million people in jails and prisons, an increase from 300,000 in the 1970s. 6 million people on probation and parole. 70 million Americans um, with a criminal arrest history. Numbers of women going to prison are through the roof. There's been a 646% increase in the numbers of women sent to jails and prisons in the last 25 years. 70% of those women are single parents with minor children, which means that when these women go to jails and prisons, the lives of these children are disrupted too. And I think no consciousness about this history of excessive punishment, of violence and uh, extreme uh, sentencing, Uh, as a response to our own fear and anger, has tempered uh, this policy. So, yeah, I do think that what we're going through now reflects a lack of thinking, a lack of consciousness about where we've been. And the death penalty is, of course, the most dramatic example of that, uh, that we now have uh, exonerated, proved innocent, over 160 people who were sentenced to death in the last uh, three decades is uh, an astonishing 
uh, thing, but we don't actually talk that much about it. Uh, we we are now at the point that for every nine people who are executed in America, we've now identified an innocent person on death row. It's an unbelievable rate of error. And yet we persist. And if you said to somebody that uh, one out of every nine apples you buy in the grocery store, if you bite into it, it will kill you instantly. Uh, nobody would buy apples. Uh, nobody would allow stores to sell apples that were that uh, at uh, that risky. But we tolerate this in our criminal justice system because we don't imagine that we're going to be the victims. And for poor people and people of color, uh, that they don't have that luxury. Uh, we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. But we don't seem to be too worried about that, too upset about that. And it's only when that changes that we begin to actually build the blocks that are needed to construct a more just system. I was totally staggered by parts of Just Mercy. I had no idea that 13 and 14-year-old kids were, until very recently, given death penalty sentences and life without parole sentences, sometimes in non-homicidal crimes, and that there are still kids across the country who are tried as adults and held in adult prisons. I know you have successfully argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on those first two points, but how many kids are still victims of the adult judicial system? And is it happening in all 50 states? Well, yes, it's still a problem. We've made some progress in confronting extreme sentencing of children, but there are still 13 states in America that have no minimum age for trying a child as an adult, uh, which means that uh, I've represented nine and 10-year-old kids facing 40 and 50-year prison sentences. And I don't think most people have any awareness that that's possible, but it is possible. Uh, we still have thousands of children uh, that have been sentenced to very, very extreme sentences, life uh, uh, or life equivalent sentences. Uh, we have tens of thousands of kids uh, who are still being prosecuted in the adult system on any given day. There are several thousand children housed in adult jails and prisons where they're at great risk of sexual assault and abuse. And most people... I don't really try to defend this. Uh, they're just not aware of it. And that's the challenge that we face is getting people closer to what happens in the American criminal justice system. For me, that was the motivation behind writing Just Mercy. I wanted people to see uh, in a more proximate way what happens to children when we prosecute them as adults, when we put them in adult jails and prisons. What does it say to us, uh, say about us? Uh, that we are throwing away so many children. I mean, I'm just of the view that all children are children, and we can't show our commitment to children by how we treat privileged and talented and gifted kids. I think our our commitment to children has to be evident in how we treat poor kids, neglected kids, abused kids, traumatized kids. And when you look at our criminal justice system, it says something really, really problematic about how we're thinking about our most vulnerable people. And and that's part of the reason why learning about this phenomena, educating yourself about these policies is so critical. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to adult prosecution of children in America. It is stunning and staggering and so troubling. And, you know, I think that the the main version of Just Mercy should be required reading for anyone over the age of 10 or 12, but I know you have a YA version that's coming out. And is that to ensure it can get on more school syllabuses? Yeah, I just think a lot of kids are living through some of these challenges, and there aren't as many resources as I think there need to be to help them understand 
some of the challenges that they face. The Bureau of Justice now predicts that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. Uh, the statistic for Latino boys is one in six. And for those kids growing up into communities where there is this expectation of incarceration, I sometimes go into poor neighborhoods and I sit down with 12 and 13-year-old kids who tell me that they don't expect to be free by the time they're 21 because what they see happening in their neighborhood is that their brothers and their siblings and their cousins and their fathers and their brothers are all being rounded up and going to jails and prisons. And that profound absence of hope for me is quite tragic. So I did want to create a version of Just Mercy that would begin to talk to these children and their peers and their friends and their teachers about why it's important that we construct something more hopeful uh, in America. I I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Uh, Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And so writing to kids about how condemned people, how other children prosecuted as adults have had to have hope to survive and to revive that hope in communities where oftentimes you have to believe things you haven't seen to have any chance at success, for me was really important. I, you know, I never met a lawyer until I got to law school. I had to believe I could be one without having ever met anybody who looked like me. And I want for young people to believe that that's possible for them too. And I hope that in these stories, they'll begin to see that there is this other struggle going on uh, that is directed to people like them. So yeah, I I am very hopeful because I'm worried about uh, communities where children don't hear stories that reflect the experiences that they're seeing in their own communities, poor communities, marginalized communities, kids of color, poor kids of all races, uh, I think sometimes feel isolated by their struggle. Uh, by the inequality that they see. And I want them to, at least in this book, understand that there's a community of people that that identify with that struggle and believe deeply that uh, we need to be doing better, that we can change things, that we can create more justice and opportunity. We'll come back to Elise's conversation. Let's talk about one of our partners in the meantime. If your house is anything like the Lunan Fismer house, your weekday morning routine looks something like this. Drag yourself out of bed and into the shower, coax the kids out of bed and into their chairs at the kitchen table, make them some breakfast they probably won't eat, pack some lunches, and then pick out the cleanest clothes you can find for them. And then somewhere in there, squeeze in a few minutes to do the same thing for yourself. And throughout this all, you're probably thinking about how the getting dressed process could and should be so much simpler. The Rowenta handheld steamer changed all of this for me. The compact, no condensation steamer refreshes clothes in minutes, no ironing boards or complex settings required. And since it works on all fabrics, it's just as useful on nights when I get to hang up my mom hat and put on my silk jumpsuit for a dinner out. I just lay the clothes on my bed or leave them on the hanger and go over it with the 1600 watt steam flow. It works both vertically and horizontally, so no twisting and turning to get the teeniest creases out. It's funny how much easier it is to get dressed in the morning when you're not casting aside favorites because they just happen to be wrinkled. You can get your hands on a Rowenta handheld steamer of your own on goop.com. Now, let's turn back to Elise. You talk about this statement as being a vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've done. And 
you know, so many African-Americans are condemned for theoretically the worst things they've done, which are typically not offenses for wealthy white teens. Can you sort of give some examples of how poor black men are sentenced for things that their white peers do freely and openly? Well, there's all kinds of disparities based on race and how the criminal justice system functions. I mean, drug possession is the most dramatic. Um, I mean, huge disparities. Uh, You know, black and brown people are not more likely to be illegally in possession of drugs than people who are white. Uh, But they're dramatically more likely to be arrested, uh, infinitely more likely to be convicted, exponentially more likely to be sent to jail or prison. You can go to any college campus in America among elite universities, Ivy League schools, Big Ten schools, major universities, and if you do a raid in the dorms, you're going to find lots of young people in possession, illegal possession of drugs. But if somebody tried to do that, there would be outrage. But we do that every day in poor communities, in low-income housing projects. We even ban people with drug convictions from receiving public benefits. And so that kind of racialized enforcement of our drug laws creates all kinds of uh, of disparities. But I think even beyond that, there is this just indifference to the victimization of poor people and people of color. You see it with the police violence issue. You see it with how uh, we deal with uh, school discipline. I mean, that we have such unbelievably high suspension rates and expulsion rates of kids of color and school systems speaks to how there is this instinct for harsh punishment that seems very influenced by race and, and status and wealth. Uh, and all of those things are going to have to change if we're going to create the kind of opportunities that most of us need to succeed. And, and I just don't think we have a consciousness about that yet that we need to have if we're going to create more greater opportunities for everyone. Right. And how what an ill it is for society, because you have all these women who are incarcerated, losing their access to things like welfare, public housing, food stamps. It really is a system without mercy. That, 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 that's right. I, I mean, and I think, you know, we've become another nation that's created a new class of untouchables. Uh, when the Congress passed this Welfare Reform Act that made it illegal for people with drug convictions to get food stamps, uh, to live in public housing, to access public benefits, we actually shielded a whole category of people, our most vulnerable people, uh, from access to our minimal public benefits. And we made them effectively untouchables. And it was mostly women with children. And the damage that was done to those families is really immeasurable. And I just think we haven't confronted what some of these policies mean. Uh, and it, is, it does reflect an ab- absence of, of, of mercy. And I, and I make this point about each of us being more than the worst thing we've ever done. And it's especially an important point for me when I talk to young kids, because I think when you're young, uh, so many young kids are just threatened and menaced all the times. Too many children are born into violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods. They go to violent schools. And when they get to school, they're threatened and menaced by their teachers who try to induce better behavior with more threats. And I just think it's very easy when you make a mistake to feel like your life is over. And for me, it's important to reinforce the idea that all of us, all of us have the capacity uh, to recover and that none of us uh, should be defined by the worst thing we've done. I think if anyone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If someone takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we understand the other things you are. 
And if the book helps young people uh, grapple with that more thoughtfully, I think it can open some possibilities that a lot of people think they don't have. That's my hope. That's my aspiration with the story. I love that aspiration. I know one of the other horrible side effects of all of this mass criminalization is that so many African-Americans have been disenfranchised and are no longer able to vote. So were you heartened by the election of Doug Jones in Alabama, who was really carried to D.C. on the shoulders of African-American women? Do you see, like, as that vote turns out, that the politics of the South could start to shift? And what do we do about disenfranchisement? Yeah. Well, it it is important that we recognize the impact that uh, felon disenfranchisement is having on the electoral process. I mean, I don't know why we want anybody living in this country who is not engaged, who's not invested, who's not empowered to participate in the democratic process. And given the long history of disenfranchisement, you would just think that it would be unacceptable, shameful uh, for states to erect these, create these policies that burden disproportionately people of color when it comes to voting. But the absence of shame is the challenge that we have to overcome. And that's why I do think voter engagement and is so important. Uh, we had this senatorial race in Alabama, which I do think signaled something really encouraging. There's an African-American running for governor of Georgia, something that a lot of people never thought they'd see. An African-American running for governor of Florida. And the emergence of these kinds of political candidates and the emerging uh, influence of uh, voters, particularly women, black women and brown women in particular, I think is a really positive and important uh, sign that we can do better. I don't believe that the majority of people in this country actually want to move backward, want to see more inequality, see more racial bias and discrimination. I think uh, there is a mass of people in this country that really wants us to move forward, to get to a better place. We've just been at times indifferent. We've been lethargic. We haven't realized that we all have to act. This is not going to happen uh, by itself. Uh, And I just think if there's anything exciting about uh, what's going on in some of these political races is that there's a growing consciousness that if some of us stand when other people say sit down, if some of us speak when other people say be quiet, we witness uh, really important change. We become a model of what can happen when people who care and, and, and think deeply about the importance of equality and justice and fairness and opportunity for women and people of color raise their voices. And that's a very exciting dynamic that gives me some hope about the political moment that we're in. So in conclusion, if people listening do one or two things and specifically things that could help EJI, like what what would you like to see people doing? Well, I'd love to see people getting involved in their local systems uh, uh, around um, who is the district attorney, who are the judges. Uh, These are political uh, decisions that we don't typically educate ourselves very much about. If you don't know your district attorney, the prosecutor in your community, if you don't know the judges and you don't know where they stand on these issues, you're going to be complicit and allowing some of these bad things to continue happening. So that's step one. We also have thousands of people coming out of jails and prisons. We don't have an infrastructure for providing reentry support. Uh, The recidivism rate in America is really, really high. And the reason why that's true is because we do so little to help people recover from the situations that got them in prison in the first place. The recidivism rate 
in Norway is under 20%. In Rwanda, it's under 7%. And that's because they spend a lot of time working with people to help them recover. We don't do that. And so we need people who are prepared to volunteer to help organizations and communities across this country provide services to people coming out of jails and prisons to help with housing and employment and education. And then the third thing is that we have to educate ourselves. Uh, We've opened up our museum and memorial. I want to invite everyone uh, to come to Montgomery to see our sites as the beginning of that education. There are cultural uh, spaces in America that I think talk honestly about our history. We need to visit them. We need to learn. We need to read. And then the last thing is that we have to be more politically active. We have to vote. And sometimes people get frustrated because they don't like either candidate that they have to decide between. And I always tell them that, you know, you sometimes are forced to make a choice between uh, bad and worse. Uh, But it's a necessary choice. And if you don't feel comfortable voting for yourself, vote for the incarcerated, vote for those children prosecuted as adults, vote for the undocumented, vote for people who have to face threat and menace every day because we haven't created the healthcare system that we need or the immigration system that we need. Vote for people who are imperiled by police violence. Vote for people who are disenfranchised and don't have the option for voting for themselves. And I think if we take that perspective, we can do some really important work to create more justice in America. Thank you for joining our conversation with Brian Stevenson today. You can learn more about his work and the Equal Justice Initiative at eji.org. And if you haven't read his book yet, please check out Just Mercy. There's an adult and young adult version. Now, it's Ask Me Anything time. Desiree wants to know, is it unhealthy for a person to be single for too long? Is there such a thing? It's actually a really interesting question. And one that I was thinking about this summer, as we're approaching the 16th anniversary of my father's death, and my mother has been single for all that time. And I I could never generalize on this topic. But it's my observation that my mother has been single for too long. And I would like her to have a boyfriend. So if any of you out there know someone who you can set my mother up with, please write us at feedback at goop.com. And I'm half kidding, but only half. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. I'll be back on Tuesday, September 25th with a bonus episode. It's a celebration of the 10th anniversary of Goop, which is crazy. It's hard to believe, but I started Goop from my kitchen in London a decade ago. And here we are. Thank you as always for listening. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.